we're attempting to make sense of wealth with God. Okay? Making sense of wealth with God. Now, um, I've got a question for you to start with. It's not a trick question. Quickly, with the person next to you or on your own, if you're, if you're just on your own, is Harpenden a rich place? Okay? Is Harpenden a rich place? Go. Okay, uh, that's enough time, all right, because it's a very simple question. Now, clearly, averages, right, don't tell the whole story, okay? Averages don't tell the whole story. And for a whole variety of reasons, you might not feel very wealthy here this evening, and so I'm not pretending that everybody in the town is rich or is wealthy, okay? Not pretending that. But nonetheless, the fact remains that Harbden as a place, by average, is a rich place. Indeed, in the summer, it was named the most desirable town to live in in the, in the UK. Did you see that? I noticed that that was carried out by Savills, who happened to have an estate agent's office in town, so maybe slightly biased, but there we are. Okay, second question for you. Is Harpenden a happy place? Is Harpenden a happy place? Okay, go on, 30 seconds. Okay. Uh, now, that's a bit trickier. It's a bit of a harder question, isn't it? Because happiness is much harder to measure than wealth. There's a number to wealth. We can measure it. Happiness is much trickier to measure. Perhaps we could say this, though, at the very least, that it's not as happy as its wealth would suggest. Is that fair? It's not as happy as its wealth might suggest. Here's some words that I thought of to describe people in Harpenden. Not particularly you, okay, myself as well. Stressed, busy, driven, high achieving, happy? Hmm, maybe, maybe. So why is it that money is failing to deliver? Harpenden is consumerist heaven, isn't it? So why isn't it cashing out for everyone in the adverts like, like they tell us it should? This evening's passage from Ecclesiastes doesn't tell us so much what to do with our money or how to spend it, or how much of it to give away versus save versus spend, all that kind of stuff. But it does offer some really wise advice to inform the basic attitude to our money so that we might be content in every situation, whatever our lot, whether rich or poor, whether we have wealth or whether we don't. And here's the, uh, this passage, I think, in terms of what it says about wealth, at any least, in, in one line. Hopefully it might come up on the screen behind me. And it's this. Don't snatch at wealth. If we go again, that'd be great. Don't snatch at wealth receive it gladly. Don't snatch at wealth, receive it gladly. We could represent it uh, pictorially, like, like with gestures like this. Don't snatch at wealth, okay, but receive it gladly. Don't snatch at wealth, but receive it gladly. So could it be that in this town, and maybe even in this church, we're conceiving of wealth in the wrong way? We think of it, we tend to think of it as our salary and our pension and our inheritance and our house and our car. That's how we tend to think of it, isn't it? When actually these things, to the extent that we enjoy them and are blessed by them, are simply gifts from a gracious God. Could you imagine the difference it could make to this town? This town, 
if more people thought like this about the stuff they had and not like this? Well, we're going to take a look at this passage and we're going to split it into those two halves in that summary sentence. Don't snatch at wealth, receive it gladly. And the structure looks a little bit like this. If we could have the next slide up, that would be really helpful. Um, you, you might have noticed that in the middle of the passage, there's this slightly, it feels a bit out of place. There's like three verses which are quite positive about wealth. Did you notice that? And the rest of it seems quite downbeat. Okay? And that's because this is what the writer is saying. is sandwiched deliberately to draw attention to that middle part. So before, from verses 8 to 17 in chapter 5, the writer is saying, don't snatch at wealth. Look at what happens if you do. We'll see that in a second. And verses 1 to 12 of chapter 6, 2, uh, are talking about a life lived snatching to get everything that you possibly could in life. And in the middle, these three verses, receive it gladly. So that's, the, that's where we're going to go. We're going to see, first of all, don't snatch at wealth because the love of money is bad, mad, and sad. Okay, there we are. That's nice and easy for you to remember. The love of money is bad, it's mad, and it's sad. And this will come up first in the screen. I mentioned that we've been talking about Ecclesiastes in this in this life in the gap, okay, life between despair and joy. And on the despair side this evening, the writer says, if we're there in the middle wandering about wealth, well, don't snatch at it, because the love of money, firstly, is bad. According to the teacher, if you look down there at verse 8, the love of money leads to oppression of the poor. Read verse 8 for you. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is hired by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. What's the root cause of this? Verse 10 tells us, whoever loves money never has enough. So the love of money, and that's what's in view here, not money itself, but the love of money, as Paul would say in 1 Timothy in the New Testament, you might have heard of this saying, the love of, ev- love of money is the root of all evil. He says that, and here the teacher is fleshing that out for us. He's fleshing out the love of money being bad, The teacher has taught in the book of Ecclesiastes before about oppression. You can read that in chapter 4 if you want. And when he did there in chapter 4, he struck a more outraged tone. You might remember it. The utter misery of oppression of one person oppressing another. But here, his tone, isn't it, in that verse is more of a warning note, not to be surprised if you see such things, he says. They're to be expected. He seems to have what you might call a cynical view of authority and power structures They exist, he says, to extort wealth from those underneath them. One official is watching over the official below them, who's watching over the official below them, each trying to take their cut, each get their slice of the pie. And so verse 9, which is a description of what should happen, the increase in the land is taken by all, so that everybody profits from the land, is actually the opposite. The top take the most, the bottom get the least. The poor are oppressed. The love of money, says the teacher, is bad. Now, it's easy to see, isn't it, uh, that how it cashes out in feudal times. If you ever sat in a history class, maybe you're sitting in one tomorrow, you might be learning about the feudal system. I've taught it more times than I care to remember. Uh, and it's that pyramid, isn't it? The king at the top and the peasants at the bottom. And the peasants, you don't want to be a peasant. It would be all right to be a king in medieval times, just about bearable, okay? Because they each take their cut from the bottom, and the top oppresses the bottom. And it's easy to see what the teacher is speaking about there in that kind of a society. It's easy to see it in industrial societies, isn't it? where the factory owner employs hundreds of people in his factory and oppresses them, frankly, to make a fat profit for himself. It's perhaps harder to see in nowadays in our advanced economy. But the reality is, isn't it, that we've advanced by exporting the dirty hard work of actually making stuff 
to other countries where we can't see it so that people can work for a pittance abroad so that we can buy things that are £1.99. That's the reality of it, isn't it? Clearly that's an oversimplification, but we have to make, make it clear to ourselves the way in which this basic observation of these verses is still at play even today. The exploitation of the poor is driven by the love of money. The love of money, verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. They're always looking for more they can get from the people beneath them. And that's the point. The exploitation of the poor is driven by the love of money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. So the rich person, if they love money and they snatch at it, they're like this, then they're always going to take it from those beneath them. And it will cause oppression. It's bad. It's bad. But the person who loves money will also find that as a result, it drives them mad. That's what the, the teacher says. It's mad. There's a real and genuine elusiveness. Remember that, that word that NIV translates it meaningless? And, uh, we've used elusive as a better translation, I think, of that sense that the teacher gives. There is an elusiveness to the pursuit of wealth. How much is enough? Well, no, no amount is, is enough, actually. If you love money, you can never have enough of it. That's how verse 10 carries on, isn't it? Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is, is elusive. And moreover, the teacher points out, the more stuff you have, the more you increase too. Okay? And that's a very vivid image, isn't it? The more stuff you have, the more you increase too. Uh, it's not, for no reason we have the phrase, the fat cats of Wall Street or the city bankers, do we? No offence to any bankers here who are very trim to a man, uh, or lady indeed. Okay? But this is the image, beloved, of, of communist propagandists, actually, isn't it? I've got this picture. I, I found this very funny. Here's a cartoon from the 1930s in Stalinist Russia. I can't read the caption, uh, but I don't need to, do I? Because I get the point. Here is a fat consumerist cat. Uh, okay? It looks like he's been eating the money, doesn't it? His face is decidedly pig-like. He's greedy. In fact, the, the caption actually does read. I know what the caption means. It means spider capital. Okay? Here's this fat capitalist spider with his legs all over the money, and he's literally eating it. He's taking it from everywhere and everyone for himself. For himself. And what does it say here? As goods increase, so do those who consume them. Okay? There's that picture of somebody just growing the more stuff, the more stuff and money they have. Now, I'm no communist sympathizer. Untold evils were perpetrated in the name of communism, and still are. But we must recognize, well, some of they've kind of got a bit of a point, haven't they? Don't these verses speak with alarming reality into our capitalist, consumerist, individual, money-loving society? Don't they? Take that picture down, thank you. Maybe, particularly at this time of year, it may just be me, maybe I'm the only person to have stared at the bottom of a Christmas tree and seen the mound of presents, which, some of which, many of which, I'm complicit in buying for myself and thinking as much as the second half of verse 11. What benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them. I mean, there's too much to open on Christmas Day, isn't there, often, in our households? Literally, you can't do anything apart from look at it. You haven't got time to. What benefit are they to the owners, except to feast their eyes on them? You see, in contrast to the labourer, who sleeps the contented sleep of one who's been working hard, verse 12, the sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich... Those who love their money, their abundance permits them no sleep. Can't imagine that, that fat capitalist spider sleeping very easily, can you? Doesn't happen. Won't work. 
There's no rest, there's no comfort, there's no use, there's no satisfaction, there's never enough to the amount of money you could have if you love money. You see, the love of money is total and utter madness, the teacher says. It can't deliver on its promises of a good and a happy life. It just can't. And then thirdly, the love of money is sad. It's sad, really sad, tragic in fact. Because if you really love money, then life will ultimately only deliver you sadness, ultimately. The teacher expounds this to you in a number of different scenarios. Firstly, verse 14, he says, if you really love money and then you you happen to lose your money through some misfortune or other, then there's nothing left for your children that will cause, uh, and, and there is nothing left for your children, then that will cause you great and deep sadness. See that in verse 14, wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit Now, we can can see this to be empirically true in some cases. After the 2008 financial crash, which many of us will remember, a research team from the British Medical Journal, highly reputed uh, medical journal here in the UK, found that there were 5,000 excess suicides in 2009, the year after the crash. And almost all of those suicides were men living in places where there had been a short, sharp shock to employment. Okay? Sad. Sad, why? Ultimate sadness, because they'd lost everything, leading to them to the ultimate expression of despair in their lives. And, and there's still the sadness of wealth lost, isn't there, for even those who don't love money. I remember one man who worked all his life as a vicar and then received a short, sharp cancer diagnosis, which took his life very quickly. And I remember him ruing and regretting that in his financial dealings he hadn't made provision for his wife and children. He was sad, sad because it was all going secondly the teacher says people who love money in this secondly in this point about sadness he points out that people who love money also experience sadness because they can never truly be happy and we've seen that already in a sense they never have enough right but the teacher returns to this theme of contentment and joy in the negative sense in chapter six in the second half of the sandwich if you like the bit the other bit of bread in our sandwich okay look down there at verse two of chapter six Verse 2 outlines the sadness that exists when a person gains wealth but can never enjoy the wealth and instead it's enjoyed by strangers. Strangers enjoy these things instead. And he says this is elusive, a a grievous evil, he says. Either through the person's largesse or their untimely death or perhaps as as verse 3 refers to their children. Maybe they have no children so they can't enjoy what they have, right? Whatever reason it is, they can't enjoy the stuff they have. And there's deep sadness there. The teacher says it's tragic, in fact. Somebody who cannot enjoy what they have. Indeed, he reaches for a very extreme example, doesn't he? An extreme analogy. He says that the person who, because of their love of money, cannot enjoy their wealth is worse off than a stillborn child. Now, I'm sorry if that's an upsetting image for you personally. It is for me. But the teacher is using an extreme image here, that of a stillborn baby who has no light, who has a a limited story, whose name is ever whispered to make his point. Such baby is better off than the person who has wealth, but no enjoyment. And then finally, in this, uh, showing how sad the love of money is, the teacher says this, it's death, it's death ultimately, that provides the ultimate crowning sadness, the ultimate tragedy for the person who loves money. 
Because ultimately, here is the final sadness for the person who loves money and loves the stuff that money brings. Verse 15 of chapter 5. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. They come into the world naked, and they go out of the world naked. You can't take anything with you. Chapter 6, verse 6, similarly says this. Do not all go to the same place at the end of that verse. The, the writer isn't a universalist. He's not saying they all go to heaven. No, he's talking about going to death, death, dying. Everybody dies. You see, you might sleep on a mattress stuffed full of 50-pound notes. You might live in the biggest house on the street. You might drive the fastest, biggest car. But none of it will do you any good when your time comes. And your time will come unless Jesus returns first. You see, here's the ultimate tragedy of the love of money. It's bad, it's mad, and it's desperately sad. It's tragic, in fact. Before we move on, can I just make the point that snatching at wealth, this love of money, this keeping it all for me, is the default position of our human hearts. It is. And it's a way that we too, all too easily rebel against the God who made us and gives us life and breath and it's also the background music of our culture, in advertising, in the media. We're a consumerist culture. Think of this famous uh, logo or phrase, because you're worth it. Because you're worth it. Buy this, upgrade that, get a better version, renew, replace. And it breeds a sense of entitlement and, an, and a selfishness and an individualism, which frankly is bad and it's mad and it's sad. Let us recognize the ways in which our culture will push us down a certain path, perhaps especially if you're here and you're a young person, teenager or younger. The world out there is telling you that keeping everything to yourself is good, actually, that you should go out there and make the most of it for yourself and your family, maybe, and maybe your friends, but really you. Keep it to yourself. Snatch at it. Make the most of this life. Be the best you can be. All me, me, me. Grab and snatch and keep. But let us recognize the ways in which our culture will do this to us, selling us stuff we don't need with the promise of happiness that doesn't deliver. But also let's remember this, that nowhere in these verses does the writer say, nowhere in the Bible does the Bible say that money itself is bad. I hope I haven't given you that impression. Money itself is not bad. Money itself is not mad. Money itself is not sad. No, it's the love of money that the teacher is speaking about here. And the meat of these verses, the centre of them, speak about the inherent enjoyment and contentment that wealth and possessions can bring. So let's flip and see in those three middle verses, verses 18 to 20. Instead of snatching at wealth, the teacher says we would be wise to receive it gladly. Receive it gladly. Now, I could throw out another question to you. I won't make you think about it, but you can answer it yourselves in your head. And the question is this, what's the opposite of greed? What's the opposite of greed? Now, I guess you might say generosity, mightn't you? What's the opposite of greed? Generosity. Well, it's interesting that to me, the teacher here, and as he's talking in, in those pieces of bread, the either side of this central section, he's talking about greed, basically, isn't he? Snatching it wealth, the love of money, keeping it for yourself. What does he say? Well, he seems to say that the opposite of greed is gladness. See the end of verse 20. God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Gladness of heart. 
So the biggest difference between this central section, which is so positive about money and possessions, and those other two outside them, seem to be the attitude with which the person has and where the person acknowledges wealth to have come from. Because in the, those outer sections of our passage, where did the person in those verses, where did they say their wealth came from? Well, you might have noticed, but it's described as their income in verse 10, their abundance in verse 12, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, verse 13, his prosperity, chapter 6, verse 3. Do you get the point? Where's the wealth come from in, in those bits? There's pers- that person who snatches at wealth, but it's come from themselves. Thank you very much. It's mine, actually. Where's the wealth come from in these three verses in the middle? Verse 19, when God gives somebody wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. God. In fact, God is mentioned by name four times in these three verses. In these most positive observations about the enjoyment of wealth and possessions, God is mentioned the most. It's interesting, isn't it? Because for sure, for some Christians, it might be right to make a vow of poverty and to renounce all worldly goods and go and live a simple life, even in a monastery, if you like. You could try it, see how it goes. It might be right for you, it might. But it's not the expectation or even the norm for every believer. Indeed, there's a rightness to receiving wealth and possessions and enjoying them without any sense of shame or, or need to feel any guilt. And I think that's what these verses are speaking about. A healthy and happy contentment in your position in life, born of receiving everything that you have as a gift from God. Did you notice the three descriptive words the teacher speaks about? He speaks about satisfaction in verse 18, enjoyment in verse 19, and, and gladness in verse 20. Uh, aren't these just the things that anyone is looking for and searching for from life? Isn't this the promise that's made to us in our, in our world out there? Get the biggest salary, the nicest house, because then you'll get these things. Isn't that the promise? It doesn't deliver, though, does it? And here the teacher says, if you simply receive everything you have gladly, then this is what it brings. Satisfaction, enjoyment, gladness. Satisfaction, verse 18 This is what I've observed to be good, that it's appropriate for a person to eat, drink, and find satisfaction in their toilsome labor. The sense of a job well done, sitting back on the sofa after a long, hard day, sleeping the the sweet sleep of the laborer, back there we saw in verse 12. Enjoyment, moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil. Usually wealth and possessions are best enjoyed, shared, It's these moments, isn't it, with friends or with family, which you'd like to last forever. Enjoyment of the things that you have. Gladness. And this is so striking, verse 20. They seldom reflect on the days of their life. I don't think that's a criticism of them. I think it's just an observation. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Their hearts are glad. What a beautiful picture. That warm feeling inside, so much to be grateful for such that such a person doesn't even worry much about the rest of their life because they're living in the moment in a good, healthy, kind of receiving way. You see, far from a miserly or guilt-inducing or negative view of money and possessions, the teacher here commends an open-handed receiving. And notice that goes, whatever the amount of money or possessions a person has, we might say, oh yeah, well it would be easy if you're on top salary, top dollar, you could really do this quite well, couldn't you? Yeah, 
could enjoy life quite easily like that. But no, he says, whatever your lot, whatever your lot, to accept your lot, in verse 19. This person is still involved in toilsome labor, verse 18. They're still working hard, whatever their lot. This attitude of receiving what they have is the wise way that the teacher holds out. Verse 20, they're glad for whatever they have, even if it's just something to eat and drink. You see, contentment is found in receiving wealth and possessions from God. And what a beautiful and attractive picture this is. I remember the first Christian family that I came across who, who, to my mind, really lived this out, who acknowledged the way that God had been so kind and so generous to them and who knew what they liked, right? But they lived with a satisfaction and an enjoyment and a gladness that I hadn't really encountered before, or at least it was different to me in the way that they did it. Their attitude to money was neither guilty. They weren't guilty about it all the time. And it wasn't selfish. They didn't just keep it to themselves. It was actually beautiful. And it was very attractive. And you see, such gratitude and gladness is likely to lead to generosity as well, isn't it? Remember, we thought about what the opposite of greed is. Well, we might say generosity. Well, it does actually lead there, I think, if we have arms like this. Where does it lead? Well, it leads to generosity. You see, the person who snatches up their money is unlikely to give very much of it away. The person who feels guilty about their money might give some of it away to salve their conscience. But the person who's an open-handed receiver of their money will almost by definition be a cheerful giver. If I have the resources to help, why wouldn't I? It's not my money anyway. I'm just looking after it. I've received it from God. You see, generosity is really the opposite of greed. But the teacher doesn't stand here and say, be generous, be generous, be generous. He says, be glad, be glad, be thankful. And generosity will come. You see, here are two very different attitudes to money and stuff. One of which in its grasping and controlling nature is bad and sad and mad. And the other in which its grateful receiving leads to contentment and satisfaction and enjoyment and gladness. And here stands the teacher in the middle of these two observations about the way wealth works in the world. And you know, like him, we too will see both these things at play in the world around us. We'll see people receiving their wealth and possessions as a gift, perhaps even those who don't believe in God. They might still live like this, and you might be really struck by that. What common grace that they could live like this without even recognizing the person who's given it all to them. But they could, couldn't they? They could live like that. But we will also see the endless snatching of wealth, which is bad and mad and sad. And so I suppose the question, as we come toward a close here, is what's going to produce in somebody such an attitude of humble receiving? What's going to produce that result? And the best answer is this. If somebody first receives the riches of the gospel. If somebody first receives the riches of the gospel. You see, the teacher encourages us that the wise life lived in the gap is the life lived upwards and lived forwards. And Ian's already mentioned that. And you see, as we look up to God, we see that God is rich. We see that God is rich, rich beyond compare. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, as the psalmist says. He's flung every star into space. He's rich beyond measure. The wealth of Elon Musk is nothing to his incomparable riches. But here's the thing about God's riches, and it's this, that he gave them up. He gave them up. 
could have the next verse on the, on the screen. You might just flick on a couple of times. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, free gift. Free gift. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You see, here is the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. God, in all his wealth and riches and majesty, and for your sake, it says, for your sake, he became poor. He gave it all up. He came into this world being born in a smelly stable. We remember that at Christmas, don't we? Suffering and dying the death of a criminal. He gave all those riches up. He became poor. He couldn't have been any poorer, could he? As he hung on that cross. And who did he do it for? For you. For your sake, he became poor. So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So you see, as we look up to God and forward to the future, we find this, that the riches God would really love to bless us with is eternal life in his name. The riches he wants to give you is himself. You can do nothing, nothing to earn him. You can only receive him. That's the only way. And you see, the person who recognizes before God uh, their poverty and their sinful, error-strewn way, the person who then turns to God in faith and repentance and welcomes them into his, him into their lives, such a person has received the riches of God now and into eternity. Such that any further riches they might enjoy on earth, even if those riches are simply daily bread and all they need to live are a gift of grace, which that person receives and shares with grateful satisfaction in the knowledge of a God who gave it to them. Let me finish with a parable that Jesus told. And you know, a little bit like last week, I just wonder whether these chapters were ringing in Jesus' ears or in his mind, perhaps, as he told this parable. You can find the parable in Luke chapter 12, but you don't need to turn there, I'll read it. You see, two men came to Jesus. They were brothers. And one man asked Jesus to sort out a financial dispute he had with his brother. He said, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Okay? Jesus says, who made me a judge over you? Fine thing for Jesus to say. I tell you, be on your watch, he says. Be on your watch for all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Okay? Sounding quite similar to the teacher in Ecclesiastes, isn't it? Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he tells this parable. He says, a rich man yielded his, his ground, yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to my, himself, uh, what shall I do? I, I have no place to store my crops. Hmm. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus of grain. And I'll say to myself, you have much laid up, plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, be merry. You see, here is the rich man. He's acting like the fool in Ecclesiastes, wanting ever more stuff for himself, the madness of wealth, the badness of it, keeping it just for him. And then the sadness of it. Verse 20 in, Jesus, in Luke chapter 12 says this, But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And Jesus ends with this challenge. 
This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves on earth, but is not rich towards God. You see, what is richness towards God? Is there an entry price to heaven? Can I pay my way there? Should I start saving now? No, no, no. Richness to God is simply receiving his grace with open hands, trusting him, thanking him, living for him, realizing that you have been made incalculably rich by the grace of Jesus Christ, who gave up everything for you. And then living a life which is storing and investing and giving and growing for that day which is to come, not for this short passing life now. Let's pray. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. We thank you, our Father, that we all have riches to receive from Jesus. Help us to humble ourselves and to receive his riches. To know that it is by grace that we are saved. And that is through faith. And we pray that as we receive the riches of the gospel, you may help us, whether we are rich or poor in material terms, to be grateful for our lot, to be thankful and glad, and to live a life of satisfaction and enjoyment and gladness all the days that you give us on this earth. We ask it for, you, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Phil. Well, we are going to share uh, a visible reminder of the fact that the God who was richer than we could ever imagine laid aside that wealth and came and suffered and died that we might become richer than we could ever imagine. We're going to take uh, the Lord's Supper now. Um, This is a meal that is a sign for those of us who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ that we are part of his body, the church. Uh, And so it's important for each of us here this evening to consider our response to him before we take the supper. So let me say, if you're uh, here this evening and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, someone whose life is marked by repentance and faith, please do, uh, when the bread and the wine come round, take and eat and share with us. And if you're not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, please don't feel uh, any awkwardness uh, in being here. It's great to have you with us, but please just let the bread and the wine pass you by uh, as it comes round. Before we uh, share the bread and the wine, let's just take a moment, shall we, of quiet to examine our hearts before the Lord, to consider our standing before him, to repent of our sin and to be thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ who became poor, that we might become rich.
Well, we started the service by reminding ourselves of many of the glorious truths about the Lord Jesus Christ that we read at the beginning of the book of Hebrews. But I didn't mention one key one, and it's this, that he has provided purification for sins and is now seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Let's pray, shall we? We do not presume to come to this, your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. We are not even worthy to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord who delights in showing mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat this bread and drink this wine, that we may feed on Christ in our hearts by faith, with thanksgiving, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. I'm going to invite uh, those who are helping with the serving to come to the front. And before we do the service, I'm going to uh, do the distribution. I'm going to pray and give thanks for the bread. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for the body of our Lord Jesus Christ who laid aside the glory and the majesty of heaven and came down and took on a human nature that he might be poor, that he might suffer, that he might die, that his body might be broken for us. Lord, we thank you for this bread which is a powerful symbol and reminder and a means by which you bless us spiritually as we eat of it. Lord, we thank you for this visible word and this chance for those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus as our saviours to share it now. Please bless us as we share it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, may the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, preserve your body and soul to eternal life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. If those who are serving would like to come and take these. If you need gluten-free bread, that's in the little tray in the middle.
do keep hold of the bread when you've been served and we'll eat together. Now that we've all been served, let's eat together, shall we? Now let's give thanks for the wine. Gracious Father, we thank you for this cup which reminds us of the precious blood of our Lord Jesus, shed on the cross, poured out on the ground, so that we might be cleansed and made pure and perfect in your sight. Amen. Well, may the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, preserve your body and soul to eternal life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you, and be thankful. Again, we'll uh, wait till we've all received the wine, and then we'll drink together.
now that we've all been served. Let's drink. Almighty and ever-living God, we thank you for reassuring us at this communion of your favour and your goodness towards us, that we are truly members of the body of your Son, and that we are also heirs through hope of your eternal kingdom. We humbly beg you, Heavenly Father, to keep us as faithful members of your church and to strengthen us by your Spirit so that we may fulfil those good works which you have prepared for us to do. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, we are going to sing uh, one more time. So let's stand, shall we? Is Jesus my Redeemer? There 